me just remind you where we've been. So we're in week six of our series on the letter to Titus. And so some of you guys have read these New Testament letters over the years. For those of you who have been with us over the last several weeks, you'll remember that Titus has been charged with organizing the church on Crete. This is an island nation that was widely known for debauchery and treachery. It was largely populated by mercenaries who would sell themselves out as soldiers to the highest bidder, and so the culture reflected a little bit of that. But despite all of that, and despite even false teachers among them, that church was growing and the gospel was going forth. Now, in chapter 2, which we've been covering for the last couple of weeks, we're going to cover again today, we read about a certain list of aspirational traits for older men. And then last week, we looked at some advice and some more aspirational traits for older women. And then this week, we're going to be looking at instruction that's given to the young wives of the church. Uh, Before we begin, let me take a moment and let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the people that are here. I thank you, Father, that you are the king of the universe. You're the architect of reality. We are your people. We are human beings created in your image. And so, Father, you have reminded us and given us uh, a glimpse of how it is that we should live life. And so, Father, I pray that we would surrender to you, remembering that this is indeed your world. I pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. How many of you guys could use a life coach? All right, you don't need to raise your hand. I'm just going to assume the answer is yes, that most of us in this room could use a life coach. At least we could use some advice from experienced people on how to live life. Recently, I ran across an article, and the article was titled, Dear 20-something Ladies. Dear 20-something Ladies. It was by a life coach of sorts, and her website is called 40 Young, which I think means that she's trying to hide her age to some degree. She's not just 40-something, 40 Young. Well, here's some of the coaching advice that she gave to these ladies in their 20s. And this is, by the way, just for fun. Number one, and this is out of a long list. I just cut a few out. Number one, her first piece of advice is trust your gut. By the way, trusting my gut gut caused me to put on about 20 pounds. So I don't think you need to do that all the time everywhere. But here's what she says. Trust your gut. Those icky feelings you get with a certain guy, valid. All right, think about that, ladies. The gnawing feeling of not being comfortable somewhere, valid. Your intuition is your biggest ally. So number one is trust your gut. Number two, you never need to chase a man. An important piece of dating advice for women, do not chase a man, ever. Men are hunters. If they want you, you'll know. There are zero exceptions to this. A man that disappears all day because he's too busy working is not being honest. You are not a priority. Probably some good advice in there. Number three, value time with grandparents. I thought this was really sweet. Spend time with your grandparents. If you still have them around in your 20s, consider yourself lucky. Take them to lunch, play cards with them, have a cup of coffee or tea, and just chat. You are the light of their lives. It means everything to them. Number four, gentlemen may be rare, but they do exist. Being a gentleman is not a lost art. It may be rare, but it does exist. If a man invites you to his house for a first date, know that he has no intention of taking you seriously. Ladies, you hold all the cards. Set the tone for the relationship from the start. If he doesn't get this very simple concept, you're dealing with a boy. (laughs) Move on, do so quickly, and do not waste your time or energy. And then the last advice, which is very serious, is know the importance of sunblock. (laughs) Wear at least SPF 50 sunscreen on your face, neck, and chest. If you choose to go lighter elsewhere, still know these places are essential. These are the areas people see first when you meet them. Invest in your future face. Sunless tanners and bronzers are amazing these days, so there's no excuse. 
So obviously that was just fun. But part of what this woman is doing is she's coaching up some younger women. Maybe it's a little bit shallow. Maybe it's not. Maybe some of it's pretty good advice. The question is, what advice or what coaching does the Bible offer to young wives in the church? Follow along with me, if you will, as I read verses 2 through 5 of chapter 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So very quickly, what do we see here? First, let me make a couple of qualifications. The assumption, obviously here, is that most younger women in the ancient Near East would be married, and this text is mostly directed at young wives, that particular demographic. Now, as I've been saying over the last couple of weeks, much of what we're reading in these texts that is directed to older men or older women or various segments of the population, here, younger women, they can be applied to all Christians regardless of our current situation. So listen up. Another assumption here is that these young wives would have had children. There was no reliable birth control really until the early 20th century. So most of the women in Crete, if they were married, would have had children and lots of them. For a point of reference, in 1800, the average American wife had eight children, which means there were some that had more than eight children, which is pretty amazing. Number three, this is qualifications. We need to be careful whenever we talk about gender. It's very easy to go too far or farther than scripture goes and to overgeneralize about either men or women. That's something the church, I think, has been guilty of a lot. I'm sure it's been something I've been guilty of. It's also very easy in our culture to not go far enough and then to not honestly say and stand behind what Scripture says. My goal, as always, is to try and honestly and courageously tell you or to be honest with what Scripture teaches. A friend of mine recently shared a quote from a pastor that he heard one time. The pastor said, I am only a waiter I do not prepare the meal, I just serve it faithfully. I thought that was a pretty good quote. I'm going to try to do that this morning. Finally, uh, if I'd covered everything in this verse alone, the sermon would have been about 20 pages long, and that would have made for a sermon that was about 45 or 50 minutes. So I'm cutting out several pieces of advice given to these younger wives. The three pieces I'm cutting out are to be self-controlled, to be kind, and to be pure. They're all important, but I've decided to focus our attention instead on some of the remaining points. Having said all of that, let's look at the first point from this morning's text. The first is this, that young wives need coaching. Young wives need coaching. Look at verses 3 and 4. This is, again, from the perspective of these older women in the church, that they are to teach what is good and so train the younger women or the young women. You may remember from last week that older women were to teach what is good. That word is a combination for good there, is a combination of beautiful and teach. And so what it means is that these older women um, are to teach about the beautiful life, the beautiful life. And I love that phrase because it honors older women and it gives them a weight and a beauty. It gives them a calling in life. What a wonderful privilege and yet a heavy responsibility. The verse then links their teaching to training or coaching the younger women, specifically young wives in this case. The word translated train means to hold someone to their duty. When I hear this language, I immediately think of an athletic coach. Uh, if we were talking about soccer, I could easily train someone to dribble really, really well. I could train someone to play a certain defensive scheme. 
I could train someone to play a particular offensive scheme. These same principles of training people to do things the right way can apply to CrossFit, they can apply to basketball, they can apply to football. But actually doing those things in the middle of a game is really, really difficult. When you're tired, it's very easy to let your form break down, or it's very easy not to make a certain run. In soccer, often the right run is an 80-yard sprint from the defensive third to the offensive third. And after you've been playing for 85 minutes, let me tell you, that is not easy to do. In fact, I could not do that right now. What a good coach does is hold someone to their duty. In soccer, I might encourage a player by saying, I know you're tired, but I need you to make that run. You can do it. Or a football coach might say, I know you're worn out, but I need you to make that block. That older godly woman might say, I know being married is hard, but don't give up. Or that older woman might say, I know how exhausting it is to care and sacrifice and provide for your children. I know it can often be a thankless job where no one sees what you're doing, but don't quit. I see you. God sees you. That same older godly woman might speak to a younger single lady and say, I can only imagine how hard or how much it is that you want a partner in life, but don't settle. The truth is we all need coaching in life. No one has it all figured out. Many older men and women in the church, however, do have a lot of wisdom to offer. It's often those older saints who remind us that at the end of your life, what matters most is not what job you had or what toys you acquired, but rather it's the relationships in your life that matter most. Older women are to coach the younger women in living a beautiful life. We then see outlined in these next few uh, verses or phrases a few aspects of what that beautiful life is. Let's look at our next point. And the next point is this. These young wives need coaching in how to love their families. They need coaching in how to love their families. Verses three and four. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. This admonition initially struck me as being a little bit odd. Maybe it struck you as odd as well. Why would younger women need any help in loving their husbands and children? It would seem to me that loving your family would occur pretty naturally. Was there some dynamic on Crete that made this a challenge for these young wives? Maybe if your husband was a mercenary, again, if you remember, much of this island had been populated by mercenaries. But maybe if your husband was a mercenary and he was gone all the time, it would be really hard to love him. Maybe if he was a mercenary, he would have been boorish and brutish and therefore difficult to love. But why would it be difficult to love your children? We're not told exactly why, but a little deeper digging here, I think, helps out just a bit. Most of you know that there are four words in ancient Greek for love. We're going to put them up on the screen. Eros is romantic love. Agape is godly or sacrificial love. Phileo is brotherly love or friendship love. And storge is familial love. Those are pretty widely accepted definitions for each of those words. Which word for love do you think is used here in this passage? Storge would make the most sense because it's directly related to familial love, but that's not the word that is used in this passage. How about agape love? Again, agape is often referred to as godly love because it desires what is good for the other regardless of the cost. Agape love is all about sacrifice. And again, agape is used just two verses earlier in regards to older men, but interestingly, that's not the word that is used for love here. It also is an eros. That might make sense in regard to your spouse, but not to your children. The word used here is actually phileo, the Greek word for friendship love or brotherly love. 
The question is, why might this be the word that was chosen instead of all of the others? C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, which I highly recommend, gives a description of phileo love. He says, in a perfect friendship, again, this is friendship love, this appreciative love is, I think, often so great and so firmly based that each member of the circle feels in his secret heart humbled before the rest. Sometimes he wonders what he is doing there among his betters. He is lucky beyond dessert to be in such company, especially when the whole group is together, each bringing out all that is best, wisest, or funniest in all the others. These are the golden sessions when four or five of us after a hard day's walk have come to an, our inn, when our slippers are on, our feet spread out toward the blaze, and our drinks are at our elbows, when the whole world and something beyond the world opens itself to our minds as we talk, and no one has any claim or any responsibility for another, but all are free men and equals, as if we had first met an hour ago, while at the same time an affection mellowed by the years enfolds us. Life, natural life, has no better gift to give. Who could have deserved that? Now, he's clearly painting a picture there of phileo love. That's the whole point of this chapter on phileo. But he paints it as this, this friendship love, this appreciation for other, this kind of love that's better when there are people together. It's a great quote by C.S. Lewis, and frankly, there are lots more from the four loves I could have used. But what does that have to do with young wives loving their husbands and their family? Again, we can understand how eros between a husband and, and a wife, we can understand that. We can easily understand storge, that makes sense as well. After all, blood is thicker than water. We can understand agape or sacrificial love for husband and children, but phileo love is different. Phileo love is filled with delight as they look at another person, at a friend. This is the love that God has for us, by the way. Listen to Zephaniah three seventeen: The Lord your God is with you the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. That's the love that's being talked about here, that we look with delight upon our husband, delight upon our children. It's this love that is spoken of here in Zephaniah. Phileo is when you put your 10-month-old to bed at the end of the day, even after she's been cranky nonstop, but then once she's silent, you sneak back into her room to peer over the edge of her crib, and you can't help but smile over her sleeping body. Phileo love is staying up late to talk with your daughter, not because you have to or because you feel like you need to, but because you want to. Phileo love gives a gift not because it's Christmas or not because it's someone's birthday, but simply because you saw something and you knew that your daughter or your son would love that thing. It would make them happy. It would bring them delight. Phileo love has no greater joy than when the family is gathered together around the table and no one gets up even when the meal is done. Maybe the reason that this reminder is given is because it's so hard to delight in our family amongst the mountains of laundry and dishes and homework and bills. For a young mom, agape is always, as the kids say, on loop. <laughs> it's always happening. Storge is ever-present. It's always there. But phileo is a reminder that your presence is actually more important than your performance. Take time to delight in your family. So these young wives need coaching. In particular, they need coaching as it pertains to loving, delighting in their husbands and children. 
And then next, we're told this, that young wives need coaching in how to be guardians of their homes. Now look, look at verses three through five. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, and the way this is interpreted is working at home. We'll jump into that in a minute. Now we're getting into territory that is a bit tricky in Western culture. Some of you heard my sermon last week about why I think it's so difficult to talk about gender and gender roles in the West. And one reason is postmodernity, which teaches that we can't know objective reality, and any attempt to talk about it objective reality is just what is called a social construct. In other words, there's really no such thing as gender. This explains some of what's going on with J.K. Rowling right now, if you're familiar with sort of her her, uh, defensive feminism versus transgenderism. That's part of what's caught there. The other reason that this is difficult in the West is because of something called critical theory. Again, this is different than critical race theory. This is an ideology which arose out of the Frankfurt School back in the 1920s. And so critical theory was this philosophy that taught that culture is created by those in power to oppress and maintain power. And so there's actually a little bit of truth to both of those ideologies. They're like tools on your tool belt in that they can be helpful. The problem is when you use those to look at everything in culture and you use them exhaustively. But they explain why when this language is used about women and home, many of us get very suspicious or even offended because we've been swimming in this water of postmodernity and critical theory for a while. To many of us, this sounds like the image of an oppressed 1950s housewife. But let me unpack the language here just a little bit, and let's see what you think. The word that the ESV translates working at home is oikoorgos, oikoorgos. It's a compound word that's made up of two separate Greek words, oikos and oros. Oikos simply means home, although when it's used figuratively, it can mean family, so oikos. Oros, on the other hand, is the Greek word for guardian, or guardian. So when the two words are combined, the idea is that young wives are to be guardians of the home. This doesn't sound like someone who simply bakes pies and wears gingham sundresses. This verse doesn't mean that women weren't to work outside the home either. Last week, we read Proverbs 31, which described a woman who ran a business, bought property, was involved in trade. It also doesn't mean that men aren't also supposed to guard their homes and families, but I do think that in some unique way, women are to be guardians of their homes. When I think about a mother who engages in oiko-orgos, I think of Ron Weasley's mom, Molly Weasley. If you guys are familiar with the Harry Potter series, either the books or the movies, in many respects, she's the heart of the Weasley home. She pulls the strings that holds the family together, mostly around food and holidays and relationships, but she also defends her family with frightening ferocity. In fact, in the final Harry Potter book, Mrs. Weasley literally steps between her family and Bellatrix Lestrange, protecting them from the evil witch. And I don't want to give it away, but suffice it to say that Bellatrix had more than met her match in this ferocious mother. So what the young wives are being called to to is something that's noble, something that's good. They're called to be guardians of their families. They're to watch over and protect their home. If you're a mom, you know there are countless things to protect your family from. Moms can protect their families from imbalance. One of the biggest threats to family right now is actually just overcommitment. There's just too many good things. Moms should protect their families from self-destructive behavior. Just imagine for a moment what would happen if you left your 11-year-old son at home unattended for two days. When you got back, he would have watched 23 hours of The Last Airbender, 
and he would have eaten nothing but strawberry Pop-Tarts the entire time. And as you know, this list of of how to protect and what to be protected from could go on and on and on. This calling to be the guardian of the home is a noble and honorable calling. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis. I love this quote. It's from his letters. He says this, I think I can understand that feeling about a housewife's work being like that of Sisyphus, who was the stone-rolling gentleman. But it is surely in reality the most important work in the world. What do ships, railways, miners, cars, government, etc. exist for except that people may be fed, warmed, and safe in their own homes? So your job is the one for which all others exist. So young wives need coaching. They need coaching as it pertains to loving their husbands and children. They need coaching for being guardians of their homes. And then finally, what we see in the same passage is that young wives need coaching in how to be submissive to their husbands. Hold on for just a second. Let me read these verses again. You can listen to them. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Everything we've read so far, compared to this phrase, has been relatively easy. The ESV translates this phrase saying that women are to be submissive to their own husbands. The NIV alternatively translates it to be subject to their own husbands. I typically love the message by Eugene Peterson, but he omits the entire phrase altogether from his translation. There are very few texts in the Bible that are so offensive to our egalitarian sensibilities, and there are probably few texts that have been so abused over the years. It's very easy to abuse this text. So the question is, what does this phrase mean? The phrase in Greek, and I'm not putting it up on the screen, you just have to listen to the phonetic version, is this, hupo tasso minos tois idios andresen. I'm not going to repeat that. It's not worth it. But the last three words in Greek there are translated to your own husband in English. And they're actually very simple to interpret. There's no charge given here to submit to men in general or some other man. The word in question is hupo tasso minos. That's the word in question. And interestingly enough, it's actually a fairly simple term in regards to its etymology. It's not not complicated at all. It's a Greek military term meaning to arrange in a military fashion under the command of a leader. You can actually see the structure of the military, the Greek military there. You can very easily research the Greek military structure. At the top is polymarchos and then strategos, and that's, uh, you can hear the word strategy there. Those are the generals. And then at the very bottom are the hoplites or foot soldiers. The Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and Marines all have a similar hierarchical structure. Every company that I'm aware of has a leadership structure. Even tech companies that claim to have a flat leadership structure still have CEOs and they have managers. Any organization that wants to run efficiently and effectively will have some hierarchy. Now, you may not like to hear me say this, but I think this phrase means what it seems to mean. Let me say that one more time. You may not like to hear me say this, but I think this phrase means what it seems to mean. We read the same admonition in other parts of Scripture, so it's not just here to the women or the the wives on the island of Crete. Look at Ephesians 5. It says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And again, in Colossians 3, 17 and 18, Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus 
giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And then in 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. None of these texts say that women are any way, in any way inferior to men. There's no, no indication of that. In fact, the primary example of submission in Scripture is Jesus submitting himself to the heavenly Father. Remember, Jesus in the garden praying, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. None of those texts say that men are better leaders than women. Think of Margaret Thatcher and Angela Merkel. So why are women to be submissive to their own husbands? Here's what Paul says, at least here in verse 5. He says, train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. There's something at stake. The reason given for submission here is that the word of God may not be reviled. I'm sure there are other reasons as well. The previous verses I read from Ephesians, Colossians, and 1 Peter each list those different reasons, but in this case, submission is for the sake of the good news. Remember, this entire section that I've been covering for the last three weeks is governed by the following verses. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that is very own, eager to do what is good. As always, the motivation for the Christian life, the easy parts, the hard parts, the parts we agree with, and the parts that rub us the wrong way, as always, the motivation of the Christian life is the gospel. We love because we have been loved. We sacrifice because we have been sacrificed for. We've been saved. We've been forgiven. We've been redeemed. And the proper response for us as believers is to echo the words of Jesus, yet not as I will, but as you will. There's a lot more to be said about this. I would absolutely invite any of you that have any questions to text me, call me. I'd love to get together with you. And let me just say, too, that I don't know exactly how all this applies. But again, my job is to serve the meal, not to create it. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And to be honest, in a world right now where there seem to be countless ideologies competing for victory, for primacy, and what seems to often occur as that battle ensues is actual chaos. Father, I pray that we would stand with you. I pray, Father, that we would believe that you are the author of reality. I pray that we would believe that you are the architect of humanity. Father, that you're the designer, you're the artist, you're the one that constructed it all. You are the one that constructed us as well. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and clarity of thought. I pray that you'd give us humility and a sacrificial love for one another. But I pray, Father, that you would give us the ability to submit and trust to you. In Jesus' name we pray.